Hello, and welcome to Technology and Space, where we talk about the science, technology, history, and business of space exploration and commercialization. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Martin Cooper, the father of the cell phone, and also author of Cutting the Cord, The Cell Phone Has Transformed Humanity, published January 5th, 2021, by Rosetta Books. Uh, thank you for speaking with me. My great pleasure, Chris. So, um, I'm sure you, you're, you're ready for all the history questions I'll be asking you. Um, I want to reach back to, uh, you started out, I guess your first engineering job was with the Navy. Is that correct? Well, you, you could call it a job. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, Navy was uh, nice enough to put me through college. Hmm. Okay. And, uh, and in order to get even with them, I had to sur- serve in the Navy for uh, three and a half years. Okay. And it, it turns out that was a great experience. The Navy made a man out of me and and uh, uh, t- taught me a great deal. So I'm uh, very grateful to the uh, to the U.S. Navy. So were you um were you sent out to uh, Korea or were you stationed somewhere else during the war? Yeah. No, I was uh, started out on a destroyer. Mm-hmm. I uh, did participate in the, uh, the Korean uh, action, mm-hmm. uh, and then I went to submarine school, and I became a, uh, a submarine officer. Okay, so so the Navy did use your electrical engineering skills then? Yes, I was. Uh, uh, everybody, uh, every officer in the Navy has multiple roles, and uh, I was always an engineering officer mm-hmm. aside from the uh, other roles that I had. Yes. Okay, so. Um... So what what uh, did you learn in the Navy that eventually contributed to the, the great success you've had uh, within your field, um, you know, with the cell phone and also with the companies you, you've started and that sort of thing? Well, the most important thing is that a, an individual can accomplish very little in today's society, mm-hmm. especially an engineer. You have to deal with other people and uh, uh, building trust in people, inspiring people, uh, 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 those kind of things are just uh, crucial. You can't can't do anything all by yourself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in, uh, everything you do in the Navy is based upon team, teamwork. You still need leadership, mm-hmm. uh, and they uh, emphasize a lot of that as well uh, in the uh, in the Navy environment. Mm-hmm. So when you did get out of the Navy, what was your um? So I guess 1973 is the big year when you know you you came out with a cell phone, you and your team, uh, in the intervening years, can you talk about sort of how you developed your skills, um, your approach to innovation and technology? Well, I uh, started to work for a company called, uh, teletype. Mm-hmm. They're too young to know what a teletype machine is. I think Chris, uh, yeah, but a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, teletype was at that time, a part of the uh, of Western Electric, part of the Bell System, mm-hmm. uh, and I lasted there for a year. Uh, and it turns out these people didn't really understand that the world was becoming electronic, not oh. mechanical. Okay. Teletype machine is essentially a printer. It's all mechanical. Mm-hmm. It, it has, the only electrical thing in a teletype machine is a motor that runs things. So mm-hmm. I lasted a year. of Teletype went to Motorola. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, it was the luckiest thing that ever happened to me, Chris, because uh, the uh, Motorola allowed me to uh, participate in the 
uh, in the role of an engineer and ultimately a, a manager, but they also let me think on my own, uh, uh, evolve uh, and innovate products on my own. And uh, it was a, just a great experience. So actually, uh, that makes me um, wonder, just stepping back, you said you went to, um, you did, you were in submarines in the Navy. Um, did you do communications technology at all for submarines or something Well, else? I was a submarine officer, submarine officer, got to be able to do everything. Okay. Uh, and uh, so you, uh, you could be an engineering officer, but uh, when there's an emergency, you have to take on any, any role, mm-hmm. including Firing a torpedo, as an example. Okay. So, uh, uh, you, you, uh, in the uh, in the position that I had, there were no specialists. You had you had to be a generalist. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So you were part of the leadership team then, because uh, I thought it was okay. So did you have engineering officers under you then? I'm sorry. So repeat the question. Did you have engineering officers working under you then, in in the submarine? Oh, or? No, I, we. I had uh, uh, enlisted men mm-hmm. uh, who were uh, professionals in their fields, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they did the real work. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so with Motorola, um, can you talk about sort of the the growth? that you experienced there? Like what, what sort of things did they have you do that helped you advance within the company? Well, uh, you got to work on engineering products and mm-hmm. project, uh, and the projects got more and more difficult. Mm-hmm. And we had more and more involvement and you got to the point where uh, you had people working with you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, Motorola, the biggest thing that I learned of Motorola is the importance of uh, objectivity. Mm-hmm. It's results that count. It's not personality. Uh, and in fact, you try to, to subvert your personality and look at your uh, problems uh, and issues uh, objectively. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, I thought that was wonderful. There were times when I got involved in, in uh, really intricate uh, projects. I worked for the uh, for NSA. Mm-hmm in Motorola uh, uh, for a period of time, learned about cryptography, which was really primitive mm-hmm. in, in those days, uh, and got to the point where I could uh, uh, create my own products. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a thrill, getting to uh, invent things. And then uh, going beyond that, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, working with a team, and inspiring the team to do things way beyond any one individual could do mm-hmm. uh, is another thing that uh, Motorola taught me and that, and that uh, uh, was a great part of that experience. Now, as, um, as computing developed over this period of time, um, how did that, that impact the work you did? Were you into, did you do any coding or were you all electrical engineering or how did that play out? Well, interestingly enough, I, uh, I introduced the first engineering computer into Motorola. Hmm. IBM came to us and they had this really primitive device, primitive by t- today's standard. Mm-hmm. You program this first computer with a plug board. Uh-huh. You could imagine that. I, <laughs> I, I don't think anybody in modern 
uh, individual could imagine programming a computer with a plug board. Mm-hmm. But I put that computer into my office and, and worked out some elementary programs. And I knew that I was successful when my guys stole the computer from me so they could solve real problems. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that, that computer lasted for perhaps a year before we got to the point where you could program uh, computers with first with tape, mm-hmm. with punch cards, mm-hmm. if you could imagine, and ultimately where you could actually uh, create a program uh, in software. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how about um, the development of satellites over this period? Were you doing any work with that? No, not at all. The, the only involvement Motorola had uh, in satellites is they actually created the, uh, you know the name of it. So oh, I, I, oh, this. I got a metal, yeah. Uh, iridium. Iridium, iridium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Motorola uh, created the uh, Iridium program. In mm-hmm. fact, it was my boss who uh, stimulated this, John Mitchell. Uh, the program was uh, successful. The marketplace was not successful, as you know. Uh, the uh, thesis of Iridium was that there are many, many places in the world where you uh, could not have wireless communications. Mm-hmm. And what the uh, team didn't quite figure out is that most of the world is going to be covered by cellular communications a lot faster than anybody ever anticipated. Hmm. So uh, Iridium still exists today, but it, it, it probably will not exist for too much longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was just not a big enough market for what it offered. Okay. Um, I also want to talk about uh, um, science versus engineering. Um, how much you know, scientific research was being done at Motorola, if any, and how much was just application of, of new ideas that had been discovered? Well, everything that we did, at least uh, in the communications areas that I was in, and later on I was the vice president of research for the company, but Motorola did applied research. Mm-hmm. When, when there were areas where we needed to evolve things to uh, increase our ability to, to achieve our business objectives, uh, we would do the, uh, the research, but it was not, a, uh, it was not fundamental research. Mm-hmm. Everything we researched was uh, focused uh, on achieving our objectives. I'm speaking with Martin Cooper, author of Cutting the Cord. You can find more information about his work at martycooper.com. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. So did you, were your customers, and I guess it would probably have changed quite a bit over the years, was it mostly government or were you focused on the commercial market or how did you balance that out? I started in the uh, communications division. Mm-hmm. And our customers were uh, public safety mm-hmm. businesses. It turns out that anybody that had resources that were mobile, mm-hmm. that were moving around 
could only manage those resources if they had radio communications. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we did is, uh, uh, we built two way radios, uh, later on portable two way radios. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, uh, as the data became uh, usable in wireless systems, and we evolved that into what exists today. Mm-hmm. And Motorola Solutions is still the world's leading uh, producer of uh, public safety communications. Mm-hmm. Very, very complex computer-oriented uh, communications. So uh, that's how we started. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, I did start a division that did uh, that became the cellular division of Motorola. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, uh, Motorola also had a semiconductor division. They had a government division, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I did uh, manage the uh, research for uh, that entire organization. Let me ask you a, a management question. Um, you know, because scientists and engineers can kind of be particular sort of individuals. Um, you know, sometimes loners, sometimes wanting to do their own thing. How, how do you manage? You know, people with this you know, great intelligence and ability who might not be able to work in a team as well as they, they, you would want them to. That's a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> we, we only have a, an hour to do this. <laughs> I can spend years talking about, uh, I have a thesis that, uh, every person is different from every other person. Mm-hmm. Don't you believe that? I do. And yeah. So you you have to deal with people as uh, individuals uh, and as people, mm-hmm. but you also have to be objective. I, I keep repeating that uh, you have to eliminate the uh, issues of of uh, personality from uh, uh, technical and scientific objectives. Mm-hmm. The worst thing an engineer can do is to fall in love with whatever he's working on. Uh, and forgetting about uh, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of of technology? Technology is the application of science mm-hmm. to create products and services to make people's lives better. Mm-hmm. Forget about the people part, uh, and it's not technology; it's curiosity. Mm-hmm. So the uh, most important thing in dealing with people is uh, respect, mm-hmm. both ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, having people like you as a leader is not a bad thing, but that's not your objective. You want people to respect you, uh, and the only way you can do that is for, is for you to respect them uh, and to work together uh, as uh, as a team. Mm-hmm. Have you written any of your ideas about management down either in this book or maybe in others? Uh, you know, I've done a whole bunch of papers in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 uh, most important thing that I've written about, and uh, maybe that'll be my next book, yeah. Chris, if you, if you encourage me enough. I might. <laughs> uh, was the uh, the uh, concept of the technology roadmap. Mm-hmm. We don't do enough predicting. Mm-hmm. We don't do enough predicting using predictive tools rather than just guesswork. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suspect that you, I think you mentioned you're a science fiction fan and I, yeah. and I am uh, as well mm-hmm. uh, one of the important things about science fiction is that you would like to think that when you think about the future that you're you're embracing science that you're not just coming up with stuff that's that's uh, uh, imaginative that's fantastic right 
so uh, uh, that has been a, uh, a hallmark of, of uh, what I've tried to do with regard to the technology roadmap. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of tools that can be used. Uh, one of them uh, is the experience curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can pretty much predict what the price of a commodity is going to be mm-hmm. uh, just by knowing uh, what the uh, past history is. Mm-hmm. Sounds crazy. But let me tell you, knowing what the price is going to be is crucial in when you're developing a product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there are, there are um, many other uh, tools. And, and so what we developed at Motorola, and which became a passion for me for a number of years, mm-hmm. is the ability to accumulate all these tools and have the engineers have objectives that are meaningful. Mm-hmm. Objectives. That, that solve real problems in society mm-hmm. uh, and that do that in a, in a way that is uh, uh, economic, uh, meaningful, and timely. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't written a lot of that down, but there has been a great deal of literature on uh, planning uh, and on the uh, technology roadmap. Uh, I, I wish that I had come upon this passion sooner, Chris, not that you mentioned it, because there are places, as an example, uh, the FCC deals with, this is the Federal Communications Commission, mm-hmm. uh, deals with technology, communications technology, and yet the commission uh, are all uh, lawyers and politicians. Yeah. There are no, no engineers on the mm-hmm. Federal Communications Commission. They should be doing this, the kind of planning that I'm talking about. They should be trying to figure out what the future technologies are so that they can focus the changes in the way we manage the radio spectrum mm-hmm. and the way we manage communications in general uh, on uh, on the future instead of just extrapolating the present. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you later on, I was going to ask you what it was like to advise the FCC, and it sounds like you partly answered that already. Yeah, well, the, uh, I'm, I'm doing my best. Uh, I serve on the, uh, the Technology Advisory Council for the FCC, mm-hmm. but uh, the FCC has got a very difficult uh, task. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they are run by Congress. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they, they have to do what the politicians tell them to do, uh, and that's very difficult for a technology-based organization to do. So I, I have beliefs that the radio spectrum is not managed in the best possible way, mm-hmm. and I've got what little I can to persuade people that uh, they should be improving that. Would it require a big fix or just slight um, tweaks here and there to make it better? Big, big fix, Chris. Okay. <laughs> so okay. You think about the way we uh, manage spectrum today. I don't know if, if this is an appropriate subject for your No, please, uh, please. Podcast. Yeah. Uh, but if there were wrong way more wrong ways that manage the radio spectrum and the FCC hasn't uh, found them yet because they, uh, we do everything wrong we assign spectrum uh, in little hunks mm-hmm. and we give a radio station or a television station or a cellular carrier a piece of spectrum and once we do that we license the spectrum to them but we allow them to treat the spectrum like they own it well, they don't. We own the spectrum. We just license it to people, mm-hmm. uh, and they have an obligation to use the spectrum 
in the public interest and convenience. Mm-hmm. Well, they don't do that. And the bottom line is that they, we are horribly inefficient at how we use the radio spectrum today. Ultimately, every, all communications systems will share the spectrum, and any transaction that occurs, any conversation, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now, mm-hmm. will happen in an optimum way. If it's a wireless conversation, mm-hmm. it will use a minimum of a spectrum, a minimum of the uh, area, minimum of the time. And if you do that, if you have everybody using only what they need in mm-hmm. the radio spectrum, mm-hmm. they use the optimum uh, frequency band, the efficiency of spectrum use will go up, this is going to sound ridiculous to you, by millions of times. I could see that. Just adding spectrum, but multiplying it. That's how inefficient we are today at using the radio spectrum. There is a, 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 a myth that spectrum is like beachfront property. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only so much of it. Uh, and once that's gone, there's no more. Well, that's insane. Right. If you think about uh, Marconi, uh, 120 years ago, was delivering data at the rate of a bit every six seconds. Mm-hmm. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But <laughs> we are now, uh, I've really worked on this number, we are now 10 trillion times more efficient than, than Marconi was. Yeah. And, so, if, uh, and it's the same spectrum. Yeah. So it's technology that, that decides what the capacity of the spectrum is. And what we have to do is encourage, require people to use the latest technologies so that we could keep accommodating all the new applications. Mm-hmm. And we have managed to do that for 120 years. Mm-hmm. Never been a shortage of spectrum. There's only been this myth the spectrum is scarce. And yet anybody that wanted to do something new, we wanted to do a new cellular concept, sure enough, we could do that. When the satellite people come along, oh, they are, there's lots of spectrum for that. Mm-hmm. So somehow we have managed mm-hmm. to expand the capacity of the spectrum faster than the needs of, of society. So how does that work with the, your law of spectral efficiency? What you just described, does it take that into account or would your... Yeah, that's, all, that's only an observation. It's not a law. Oh, okay. I saw, I saw it described as a law. <laughs> we call it that, and some people call it Cooper's Law. Yeah. But it really is an observation that somehow uh, we have doubled the capacity of the spectrum. This is just a measurement uh, every two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we look at the technology available to us that we're not yet using. It's my belief that we keep doing that for at least another 50 years with technology we know about. Mm-hmm. And you know that we're going to keep coming up with new things. Right. Uh, there's no reason to believe that we can't deliver all of the data that people need wirelessly mm-hmm. uh, indefinitely. Let me, let me step to uh, step back. Well, to the cell phone, you know, the, the development of the cell, the first cell phone. Um, what about the system or the phone and the system? What was it? What was the difficulty that made people so skeptical about being able to do this? Well, you're right about people being uh, skeptical. 
uh, and uh, the skepticism uh, was not related to the uh, technology. It was hmm. uh, people have been trained for their whole life to accept the fact that the telephone wire was the connection. Mm-hmm. That if you wanted to talk to somebody at a distance, you had to do it with the wire. And the idea that you could do this with uh, uh, wirelessly mm-hmm. was very difficult for some people to accommodate. Mm-hmm. Those of us that read Dick Tracy didn't have that problem. <laughs> because Dick Tracy had a wrist phone. Yeah. And, and it's absolutely the truth that we worked very hard to come up with a wrist two-way radio. And just about when we did to see that, it was a pretty big risk that it would take the whole damn radio at the time. <laughs> uh, Dick Tracy came along with a risk video phone. <laughs> so he stayed ahead of us and set the, that wasn't science fiction, that was the comic books. Right. Uh, but it was visionary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what were, since we do mention science fiction, or since you mentioned it, uh, what are some of your favorites? I thought of Asimov's Foundation when you talked about, you know, predictive ability and, and technology. Um, but what did you like? What sci-fi do you like? Well, I, of course, I read all of uh, Asimov. I also read uh, Ray Bradbury. And, uh, you, you go through the list, and, and I've uh, done them all. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I've actually forgotten more. Yeah. That, I, that I've read because I still do. I, I still read analog. Mm-hmm. Do, do you subscribe to analog science fiction? I, I used to. I don't have the time uh, to read it, but yeah, I'm familiar with analog, and I'd like to be able to. But oh, is that you're an organized guy? I am not. I'm, I am not organized. <laughs> I'm fortunate enough to, to be able to do whatever I want to do, and uh, I still keep busy all the time. But uh, but uh, every once in a while, I'll pick up a. Uh, a science fiction story and read it. Do you, do you feel like you're still reading sort of visionary stories that can lead the way to new technology within sci-fi? You know, anything that, that stimulates your mind mm-hmm. beyond the everyday thing is, is useful in that regard. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I have a belief that, uh, well, the thing that thrills me the most mm-hmm. is having a new way of looking at something. Yeah. To me, it's thrilling. Uh, and and uh, most of the time, it turns out there's nothing really new about it. Other people have thought about it if I dig into it. Yeah. But at least I know that I thought about that personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that is, if there's a big thing in my life, uh, it is that. It is uh, it's having the thrill of a new idea. It's, it's getting together with smart people like yourself. Uh, and having people ask questions, yeah, and uh, all of a sudden you think of a different way of, of looking at something, uh, and that creation is uh, the most stimulating thing in my life. So to go back to the the cell phone again, um, the little incident about you calling your rival at AT and T was was that planned or was that a spur of the moment kind of thing? It, it really was serendipitous, Chris. I just. Uh, you know, the, the, the important thing that I was thinking about when we were out on the streets of New York mm-hmm. I mean, with this reporter, mm-hmm. uh, and I deliberately got out on the streets because I wanted him to understand the concept of mobility, mm-hmm. that we were creating, that the old phone was, uh, was a device that connected a place to another place. Mm-hmm. We were going to be connecting a person 
to another person. Right. It was a whole different something. So there we were out of the street. And, and that's when it occurred to me, you know what? The guy that doesn't believe that is, is my uh, uh, counterpart at AT&T, Joe Langle. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give him a call. Uh-huh. And I pull out my address book. Mm-hmm. I wanted you to know how primitive we were at the time. <laughs> and and uh, looked up Joe's number and called him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and miraculously, from a historical point of view, he answered the phone. Yeah. Not a, just a, <laughs> he said, Joel, it's Marty. Marty Cooper. He says, hi, Marty. I said, I'm uh, calling from a cell phone. He says, really? I said, yeah, but it's a real cell phone. It's a personal, handheld, portable cell phone. <laughs> you know, it's like, I didn't resist uh, rubbing it in. And, uh, uh, Joel uh, was uh, noncommittal. He was polite. Yeah. <laughs> this thing, uh, Joel does not remember that phone call. I guess I don't blame him, uh-huh. but he doesn't. He doesn't dispute that uh, we that we did have that conversation. Maybe he was busy and he just thought you were pranking him or something. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> well, he he still does not believe that the cell phone is a very useful uh, device. Hmm. Uh, and he doesn't believe that we had uh, any impact on uh, the uh, creation of the cell phone, uh, despite the fact that the system he was working on uh, only expanded the wire line into the car, mm-hmm. uh, which we thought was uh, just inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe that the, uh, uh, the personal communications ought to be everywhere. Mm-hmm. That people wanted the freedom to be able to communicate wherever they are and whatever they were doing and whatever the time was. And of course, we turned out to be right. And there are more cell phones mm-hmm. in the world today than there are people. Yeah. So I guess we must have been right. But you know, I dodged the question you asked us about uh, were there technical challenges to this cell phone? Mm-hmm. And you bet there were. Uh, if you could imagine this cell phone, the first one that we did had uh, over 400 channels. Mm-hmm. We had never built a radio that had more than uh, a dozen uh, channels in it. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, the device that did that, that allowed you to do that, was a synthesizer. Uh, and this was a uh, an integrated circuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had just been created in our semiconductor laboratories, so we got the first lab units to do that part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of putting, having a, uh, a, a transmitter and receiver at a, uh, a gigahertz, at a thousand megahertz, mm-hmm. was unique. Mm-hmm. It had not been done in a portable before. Uh, that was a major uh, challenge. Of course, today, uh, a gigahertz is nothing. We have uh, cell phones that operate at uh, two and a half gigahertz and Mm-hmm. Very likely will go up to six gigahertz and, and more. Uh, even the antenna was unique. The the uh, ability to talk and listen at the same time mm-hmm. unique. So there were a number of challenges, but uh, fortunately, we had been working on various things in our laboratories. And I, as you might have figured out, I'm a techie. I love to wander around the labs, find out what people are doing. Mm-hmm. And somehow or other, we managed to find uh, in our labs all of the elements of technology, including the system technology. Uh-huh. 
and put this thing together uh, and we did and what we created was very different than what the uh, our competitor with the bell system was proposing because we were operating in three dimensions mm-hmm. the belt system was talking about being in a car mm-hmm. uh, cars were always at ground level ah. uh, uh, we had to anticipate the fact that somebody could get in an elevator and go up a hundred stories yeah uh, and if they keep putting out the same power on uh, floor 100 as they were on the first floor they would take over a, a an entire city so we yeah. have to include things like <laughs> power control and so and so we managed the team managed to put that together in a little over three months it was just a remarkable achievement and that's one of the reasons that i wrote cutting the cord Mm -hmm. is i really wanted the world to to know what achievement uh, uh, my team and motorola did at that time i'm speaking with martin cooper author of cutting the cord You can find more information about his work at martycooper.com. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. What about the infrastructure on which the signals were carried? Did you have to create something special for that? You bet. Uh, the infrastructure included included a switch. Well, we managed to take an existing wireline switch mm-hmm. and convert it, but you also needed a base station. Mm-hmm. You needed a way to uh, determine when you wanted to hand off the signal from one station to another. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, we had to uh, do all of that while we did the handheld phone. Uh, none of that required extraordinarily new technology. It's the phone mm-hmm. that was really a challenge. And, uh, I don't know. Is your podcast just audio or is it visual as well? I'm going to do a, a visual version as well. So both. Well, there it is. Yeah, yeah. This is what the first uh, cell phone looked like. Mm-hmm. This thing uh, weighed uh, almost two and a half pounds mm-hmm. and a battery life uh, of uh, 25 minutes of talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't think 25 minutes is very long, but you couldn't hold this thing up for 25 minutes. <laughs> so, what, so when you made that first call, I guess you had to be cognizant of how far you were from the station that you were u- using, right? The station was right across the street. Okay. So yeah. we, we knew that part of it was going to work. Yeah. Uh, having the phone itself work was problematic because we were still fixing stuff in the phone uh, the night before. Uh, remember, this is a one-of-a-kind, mm-hmm. and it was done with discrete components, individual parts yeah. put together. There are uh, several times more parts in this phone that does only talking and listening and a modern cell phone that has a supercomputer in it, a digital camera. There, yeah. but the, uh, so having all these hand-wired parts in there, uh, the thing that I was worried about most uh, was: uh, is this thing going to keep working for my whole demonstration? Yeah. So, what about um, when you finally decided to mass-produce a model? Um, 
how about, you know, developing the manufacturing processes for, for these phones? Was it difficult, you know, for all the little intricate parts? Well, the first part was uh, uh, creating the technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the integrated circuits that we, that we used in this phone had just been created. It took years to get to the point where the, we could do those things uh, uh, duplicated. Mm-hmm. And two and a half pounds are just too heavy. So mm-hmm. we really, uh, but it, it took 10 years for us to get to the stage where we could build a phone reproducibly, exactly what you just said, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, with a performance that was uh, acceptable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so the uh, first commercial cell phones didn't go into service until 1983. Mm-hmm. It took a good part of that time for the FCC to decide uh, who was going to be the carrier? Were yeah. they going yeah. to have a monopoly? <laughs> yeah. Or uh, would there be competition? Well, you knew which side we were on. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, and then when the FCC was starting to get ready, uh, we weren't ready. Yeah. We still hadn't worked out all the manufacturing processes. Mm-hmm. So it, it took a good 10 years uh, to uh, get this technology going. But when we did it, we did it the right way. We mm-hmm. did it with uh, true personal communications. Now, um, this question, forgive my ignorance, but so that first phone, how much, how much computing power was in it or was it, did it use any kind of computing or how? The only real computer in there was the synthesizer that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think you know what a synthesizer does. There was a quartz crystal oscillator in there mm-hmm. and somehow or other you, uh, for every channel that you wanted to be on, mm-hmm. you computed what that frequency had to be uh, and generated it arithmetically. So that's all this computer did, mm-hmm. but uh, there was nothing that you would call a computer in that phone. Mm-hmm. It was, it was uh, everything was, aside from the synthesizer, everything was analog. Mm-hmm. And so when, um, when people work on this kind of technology for Motorola or another company like it, do you get any sort of benefits from the patent or is it the company just owns it all or, you know, when I joined Motorola, uh, I had to sign a document that uh, turned over any intellectual property that I created while I was at Motorola or for a year after I left. And for that, they gave me a dollar. And, and it was the best deal I ever did, Chris. I, <laughs> Motorola tolerated me for 29 years and uh, uh, allowed me to, to uh, exercise uh, my creativity. And I, I have been everlastingly grateful to that company. So once you did, um, you know, once the cell phone was became sort of a, a, a mass market product, uh, what, what, what were some of the challenges that existed as far as you know, at that point, were you just competing with others to make better phones, or, or what was the, the the barriers you were trying to overcome at that point? Well, I, uh, uh, after the uh, we ended up creating that first phone, we actually built a, uh, five different versions of that phone before we had a commercial one, mm-hmm. and then I moved on to other things. I ended up managing. Uh, all of research and development at Motorola and other people took on the uh, cellular channel challenge. Okay. Uh, but the big challenge, there was just one after another. And after I left Motorola, uh, which I did just about the time 
when the phones became commercial, mm-hmm. uh, my wife and I started a company that did the uh, billing and uh, uh, management of cellular systems. Mm-hmm. And would you believe these new companies that took on the role of providing cellular service never did figure out how to collect the money, <laughs> the how important. to put out the bills. That's an and important so we piece. did that for, for a number of years. Mm-hmm. We, we provided that uh, service. So uh, uh, this business started out in, in the smallest way and grew to uh, one of the biggest businesses in the, in the world today. Now, was it uh, was the ability to figure out how to bill and collect money was that a technical challenge, or were you just did you just happen to see that problem existed and jumped jumped on it? Well, it was a business challenge as well because there were things that were happening that just didn't happen elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the example being a roaming, the ability for a, a user to go from one city to another. Mm-hmm. Nobody thought that was going to be very important either, mm-hmm. and uh, of course, uh, people don't even think about it now. But the first phones. Uh, you could use it in your city, uh, and uh, if you try to use it in another city, if there wasn't an agreement between those two cities, you couldn't use it. Huh. And if you did use it, they collected the data in one city on a roll of tape mm-hmm. and mailed the tape to the other city, if you could imagine that. <laughs> it, it, all of that is done instantaneously today because mm-hmm. everything is connected to everything else. We have roaming not only uh, within the uh, U.S., but you could roam virtually into uh, uh, any city in the world mm-hmm. and, and use the same phone, cell phone. So what would you say is your, and you did mention a technical map, like how do you, how do you think, how, how do you apply sort of visionary type of thinking? You know, how do you think looking into the future and what you expect uh, to happen? What approach do you take? Well, the, the, the most logical approach is to put yourself into the mind of the user. You know, I'm back to this issue of uh, technology is nothing without uh, without people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what innovators do is they just constantly look around. My wife is like that, uh, almost to an annoying extent. <laughs> she, she will look at anything and say, you know, I can do that better. Mm-hmm. And that's what innovators do. They they look at any problem, and and uh, or at, at any situation, and say, "I can do that better." Mm-hmm. And and so the the bigger their storehouse of of tools, of uh, technology, of different ways to do that, the more things they have available, and the more able they are to solve these. Uh, many problems to innovate. That's what innovating is. Mm-hmm. There are no 100% original invention. Mm-hmm. I have a belief that it's, it's almost like how the universe is created, that there has never been an invention that wasn't based upon somebody else's mm-hmm. uh, invention or inventions. So the important thing for innovators to know as much as possible about what is possible and then put those things together in ways that have not been conceived before. What um what what scientific breakthrough that we're approaching are you most excited about? You know, there's all these things that you know we talk about. What inspires you? Well, uh, I learned 
company. I started a company some years ago in 1992 uh, that uh, used that introduced uh, smart antennas mm-hmm. into society. Uh, and what I learned was that uh, the, that the way to approach uh, that problem was to take a, uh, a group of antenna elements. I'm, I'm afraid I. I'm getting in more detail than I plan to. No, it's fine. But figure out what is the optimal combination of signals. Mm-hmm. Go from one point to another to achieve an objective. Mm-hmm. The objective is to have a good communications path. Yeah. There were people that were taking multiple antennas and creating beams. Well, a beam is a, is a construct that might or may not be useful. Uh, it, it was not the, the, the right approach to the problem. The right approach to the problem is optimizing, setting up rules that optimize the best solution mm-hmm. to a set of cir- circumstances. And what I discovered is you could apply this to virtually anything. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it goes back to this thing that we talked about at the beginning, how inefficient we are at using spectrum today, that, that when we optimize sharing of spectrum, we're going to find that there's huge capacity to uh, uh, to the radio spectrum. Mm-hmm. Not if you take this uh, uh, concept of optimization and look at politics. Mm-hmm. You discover why the American system, American approach to democracy, highly flawed, as you well know, yeah. <laughs> uh, is still the best. It's emulated by countries all over the world, and it's still the best way to do it because it is a self-optimized system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you have a hierarchical system where the boss says this is the way we're going to do it, you will never achieve optimization. Right. But if you have a system that keeps correcting itself and sometimes overcorrects, mm-hmm. ultimately it's going to move toward the optimum. And right. so one of the things that I advocate at the moment in almost any situation is applying this concept of self-optimization. So. You know, I can't design circuits anymore. <laughs> they, uh, they, when, when you've got a chip that contains uh, two billion transistors, <laughs> the first product that I created uh, when I came to Motorola, uh, which was a, a, a self-contained product, had 39 transistors in it. Yeah. And it was in a box all by itself and it performed its function. Mm-hmm. Well, the difference between a, 39 transistors and 2 billion puts me out of business. <laughs> but I can still think of at high levels. Yeah. So um, I noticed in a 2013 interview, you you described the cell phone as being in its infant, infancy. And now in 2021, wh- where would you say the cell phone is? It's, it's a slightly more grown-up infant. <laughs> the, the, the cell phone is suboptimal. Mm-hmm. In almost every respect, I, I happen to have my latest phone here, which is a, a pretty nice phone. It's an iPhone. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an 11, not a 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I want to make a phone call, uh, I have to lift the phone up in this awkward position, yep. take this flat piece of plastic and put it against the curved end. And uh, it is not an optimum phone. Right. Or is it a, an optimum visual device? Because I got this little tiny screen that I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, it's not optimal for virtually anything that it does. And yet you know that if you focused on each one individually, 
if you made an optimum phone, you know what it would look like or what it would be. Yeah. Uh, it would be a chip embedded under your skin, near your ear. Yeah. And uh, if I wanted to talk to uh, Chris, I'd say, uh, uh, phone, get me Chris on the phone. And I'll say, which of the 30 Chris's you want? I say, the one we did a podcast with. And the next thing you know, I'd be talking to him. That would be pretty optimal phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, if you want to go a little further, we could do a little science fiction and say, uh, I ought to be able to think, mm-hmm. uh, Chris, and, and be able to communicate with you. But that's not scientific. Mm-hmm. So, and, and similarly, there are ways to get a, uh, a, a visual experience that might be a 60-inch screen mm-hmm. uh, with your personal device. Well, we haven't figured that out yet, but you know that Google Glasses were mm-hmm. an effort at that. Right. So my, my view of the future of the cell phone, which I talk about uh, in a later chapter of Cutting the Cord, mm-hmm. uh, is that the phone will be adapted to the individual that it will contain some artificial intelligence mm-hmm. that will examine your behavior on a continuing basis that will find an app. You know how ridiculous the concept of having 2 million apps. All you've got to do is find <laughs> the right one for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. This artificial intelligence will either find an app or it will create one mm-hmm. that's designed for you that does, that serves your purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so everybody's phone will be different from everybody else's phone. And it will solve big problems, not just the social media uh, and uh, finding out what's for dinner when you're, when you're on the way home. Uh, but uh, health care, uh, uh, it was going to be a fundamental purpose of a cell phone. Right. Uh, the digital divide it will provide cell phone-like devices to every student mm-hmm. uh, so that they can access the Internet, access uh, learning tools, uh, and people will optimally collaborate. That's that is the vision of the future cell phone. Now, when you um, and I, I, so when you develop the first cell phone, is is there anything about what you designed into it that you wish you could have changed at the time, done a little bit differently, considering the trajectory? You know, it sent everything. Is there anything you'd go back and change? You no, know, it's it's miraculous that we achieved what we did. Mm-hmm. If, if we hadn't had, uh, I want you just imagine this: that the uh, Motorola was not a small company; it was a billion-dollar company at the time. Mm-hmm. The Bell system uh, had revenues of twenty-two billion. Uh, they, they, we were trying to influence the FCC. Uh, they had two lobbyists assigned to either, each commissioner hmm. a total of 200 people in Washington <laughs> doing nothing but lobbying the uh, FCC or the various other governmental entities the, uh, the uh, Congress people so uh, how could a little company like that achieve that and, and the reason was that the management knew that we were right mm-hmm. and they bet the company on it hmm. You know, talk about being fortunate to find it, come into that situation. Yeah. So I, I tell people I'm the luckiest person in the world, and I, and I believe that. So what about the um, and we just have I guess we have a few more minutes. Um, I just have a few more questions. Uh, what about the current? You mentioned um, 
uh, allocation of the spectrum, but how about cell phone inf- the f- current infrastructure? What what are your comments about what it's like today? When you say car infrastructure, oh, uh, cell cell phone infrastructure. There are a couple of anomalies uh, that are, uh, have occurred today that uh, are weird mm-hmm. that have to get fixed. Uh, if you if you notice, uh, all the cell sites are outside. Mm-hmm. You notice that. Yeah. Uh, where where do you make your phone calls? Inside, Inside buildings. Yeah. So what we have done is is put the cell sites in the hardest possible place to reach the people. So you know, uh, in the future, we're going to find that the infrastructure is going to be distributed a lot more rationally. Mm-hmm. That that you know, a, a lot of the cell sites are going to be in buildings, mm-hmm. and the, the cell sites in the buildings will not interfere with the cell sites on the outside. Mm-hmm. If you think about that alone, will increase the capacity of the radio spectrum. Mm-hmm. So, but we are, uh, we will find that almost all of the uh, antennas on this, on the infrastructure are going to be multiple antennas, what they call MIMO. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the way MIMO is used uh, today is mostly for millimeter waves. Uh, I think that, that millimeter waves are a very interesting technology mm-hmm. uh, to be used in the middle of the city for highly dense places. Uh, but uh, uh, we're going to find that uh, smart antennas are going to be used at every frequency, and that alone is going to multiply the capacity of spectrum uh, by many, many times. Is is that what 5G uses? or? Yeah. yeah. 5G is, is really... It's, uh, it has been... Uh, overhyped mm-hmm. in the sense that it really is a progression from 1G, 2G, 3G, and so forth. Mm-hmm. The things that 5G offered uh, are uh, some improvements uh, in the uh, effectiveness of communicating one place to another. Uh, the biggest thing that 5G does is uh, 5G allows for assigning segments of spectrum to be used for specific purposes like running factories, uh, ostensibly it's going to be used for uh, uh, automated vehicles uh, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's what people refer to as the Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I, I think that's a very desirable long-term objective, but I also suggest that we haven't finished the Internet of People yet. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, what I would like to see is a little better balance between uh, the uh, the objectives of 5G and in, in, uh, introducing millimeter waves, uh, high speed just for the sake of high speed alone, uh, latency. I don't know when the last time you had a problem with latency, is, uh, Chris, but uh, latency is not a people problem, it's a machine Mm-hmm. The problem. The, uh, the future infrastructure, to uh, address your question, is going to be focused on, the, for people, it's focused on coverage. Mm-hmm. What you want as an individual is you want to be able to talk anywhere. There, a big percentage of our country is not covered mm-hmm. by service. Right. There are people who don't have service at all. Mm-hmm. That's not unacceptable. There, the technology exists, so we have good coverage. And the second one is has to be more affordable. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
cellular services costs cost too much, and that creates what we call the digital divide, and that too is uh, unacceptable. So do you think, so considering some of the problems that exist with phones, you know, like the ergonomic things or the human factors and also, you know, all these things they stuff into phones, do you think the industry is too focused on on gimmicks for the public versus, you know, more quality products? Well, the answer, yes, I, uh, but only in, in this one narrow area. Mm. Uh, the fact is the carriers uh, are doing a good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, they are doing a reasonable job of coverage, mm-hmm. not as good as I would like, mm-hmm. but uh, they're, they're doing a reasonable job. The, uh, the, the thing that I object to is, uh, well, I guess it's two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is that they should be emphasizing more about solving the digital divide. Mm -hmm. They should be doing more to improve coverage. They have to figure out some way to get low-cost broadband access to students. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there should be more emphasis in that area. And the other thing they're doing is they're hyping the uh, 5G, especially millimeter wave, and telling people they're going to get things that uh, are not going to happen for 10 years or longer. I think that's misinforming the public, uh, and they shouldn't do that. Do you, um, and I'm not sure how much you might might have thought about this issue, but how do you get more students interested in engineering and technology and working on this sort of stuff? You know, how do you get more, you know, because they talk about the U.S. has a problem with that, getting enough students into science. Well, I have a belief that our whole educational system is messed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's it's not something that I, that I uh, evolved myself, uh, but the whole concept of a lecturer standing up in front of a uh, bunch of students and talking to them for an hour on a on a, a very narrow subject is not the best way to teach people. Mm-hmm. The way people learn is is by doing things, mm-hmm. by solving problems, and and uh, we have all kinds of tools for teaching people in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ideal tool of that nature is a game. I don't know if you play uh, the uh, digital games, mm-hmm. uh, but these games are interesting. They're challenging. Yeah. They're uh, adaptive, mm-hmm. right? You know, if you can't solve a problem, they will give you a different route to solve it. Mm-hmm. Well, just imagine if you could create an educational system based upon game playing. Mm-hmm. That, uh, and, and using that to teach people. So I think that the, improving the teaching process will persuade people that learning is one of the great things of life, maybe the most important thing of life. And if people start learning, we're going to have lots of engineers available. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I, one of the objections I have, I'm sure that I'm diverging from your it's question, fine. is is that we treat everything in silos. Mm-hmm. Uh, silos is an example in uh, elementary education. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about uh, uh, history, geography, arithmetic. The world doesn't live in silos. Mm-hmm. The world doesn't have chemical engineering, electrical engineering, aeronautical engineering. The world has problems that have to be solved. Mm-hmm. And so I think our whole way of thinking about how we teach and how we approach the problem is this changing. We have to think more in terms of design uh, uh, as being the fundamental process 
and these other technical issues as being sub-processes that are applied depending on what the design demands are. Yeah. You know, I, I, just talking to you about this, it, you know, the, both the combination of the cell phone and the internet, I think have allowed society to, you know, both com- communicate information basically in, in a faster and more efficient and interesting way. And I think both have contributed together to really raise the, the sort of knowledge and intelligence of, of society. So I just wanted to make that comment, you know, and, and thank you for that, <laughs> that contribution. You said it a lot more tersely than I did, but you're, <laughs> but you're exactly right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's amazing, you know, the, you know, someone might say, well, eventually they'd come up with a cell phone, but, but the fact is you and your team did it at that time and kickstarted, you know, set us on the path to where we are, you know, as far as science and technology. So that's just my I comment. Think, <laughs> I think you expressed it right. Dude. We know that ultimately it would have happened either way, but I think we jump started it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you, can, where can people find you on the web? Do you have a website or social media that people can follow your thoughts? Yeah, well, I'm uh, uh, at Marty, Marty Mobile on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have a, a MartyCooper.com. Uh, uh, unfortunately, at the moment, it only leads you to, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. It, uh, it will lead you to how to buy my book. Okay. Even work, if I could do it by commercial. Yeah. Uh, but it also leads you to the site of uh, uh, my wife and I have a site called Dyna LLC that uh, is our uh, incubator mm-hmm. uh, and there is a list of papers on that site that I've written that uh, people might find uh, interesting and there's also a segment on the pipe on the uh, uh, site for students who are doing uh, projects mm-hmm. uh, where they want to talk about the invention of the cell phone where uh, we give them resources so, MartyCooper.com uh, or DinahLLC.com. Okay. Where you find me. And I'll spell that. So, Marty Cooper is M A R T Y C O O P E R.com. You bet. And Dinah LLC is what? D Y N A? Right. LLC.com? Correct. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, and, and, I was going to ask, you know, what's your next writing project? And maybe it'll be this book on management and developing innovation. Perhaps you might do that. Well, it's on the list, Chris. I, <laughs> I, my list keeps growing. I, I would love to, to, uh, to talk about self-optimization. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I, uh, uh, somebody asked me uh, just recently whether I am a procrastinator or... Uh, an organized person, and I told him I'm a hundred percent procrastinator. <laughs> I, I uh, have never understood the concept of discipline. Uh, I ran uh, huge businesses for Motorola, and I was the world's worst executive. <laughs> Why they tolerated me, I'll never, never understand. So I can't tell you what the next project is, but but I'm just I'm going to keep going as long as I can. Appreciate. Anyway, that. great pleasure to uh, to be with you, Chris. I hope this is. Uh, useful to you and i hope a lot of people uh, uh tender yeah and i i, I want to thank you again for speaking with me and also for developing and and creating the first cell phone <laughs> for the world that's that's pretty awesome i appreciate it's it my, my pleasure for both of them thank you for listening if you like this podcast technology and space 
please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter to keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.